Martin Levin is the editor of the, in Canada we call it the Globe and Mail, for the rest of our listeners it's the Toronto Globe. It used to be the Toronto Globe and Mail. A long time ago. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. And whenever I read your name, I can't help but think of Tolstoy's Anna Karenina. And why is that? Because of Levin in the... Of course. Uh, Nikolai and Constantine. Yes. yes, yes. I was so chuffed to realize I was kind of Tolstoy's hero before I was born. <laughs> <laughs> but it didn't mean a lot to me. And, and, as it happens, it's... Uh, I mean, there are Levins in a Bernard Malamud has a character named Seymour Levin. Not a name I would have chosen. But... Um, but in one of the greatest novels ever written, for some people, the greatest novel ever written. It's nice to be in the Trudeau de Purvin who has turned me into some kind of um, mystical Christian. It's, well, it's, it's a lovely name to have. It's a lovely literary name. It's sort of appropriate, just like uh, Stephen Page yes. is the publisher of paper. Yes. It, uh, it puts me in the mind of, um, I can't remember his first name, but the uh, coin. Coin. They used to be the bank. Uh, the James Coin. Yeah. Now, is, is he Andrew Coin's father or uh, he uncle? Is, or he's his uncle, I think. Okay. Well, uh, might be his father. Yeah. The coins are kind of extended. Now, Deborah Coin might, and, and Andrew are cousins, and one of them is the yeah. son or daughter of James Coin. Okay. I uh, I have with me here the uh, the June tenth edition of the uh, book section of the Globe and Mail and. Uh, in it, you write about uh, Cynthia Ozick, and I want to quote you something that might shed some light on what you do. You talk about her new book of criticism and the din in the head. Yeah. Yes, the din in the head, and here we are, which cannot be distinguished from her <coughs> moral vision. It is possible to separate high from low, the enduring from the ephemeral, even to aver that intellect itself and the ethical life as well requires the making of distinctions, sorting out, acknowledging that one thing is not another thing, facing down blur and fusion and the moral and aesthetic confusion of false equivalence and in the name of appetite for life, false worth. Is that what you do? <laughs> in a very kind of modest way. Uh, I mean, it's, it's an issue that I struggle with. What the Ozick is talking about is she's a, kind of against the postmodern leveling of all things, and she mentions uh, that Susan Sontag wrote an article in which she compares some great work of art, and perhaps Tolstoy even, to uh, Patti Smith. It's that, kind of, it's that kind of leveling that Ozick is... Uh, but Ozick's very interested in the high, and I, I run a section of a daily newspaper, which has to have a kind of broad range. In fact, in early years, I was sometimes accused by the people I reported to of being too highbrow. And some books I made, and I've said this before, uh, some books are made to be advertised, not reviewed. I don't know that we reviewed the Dan Brown book. It didn't really require our review. Terrible I'm, I'm, book. Yeah, uh, well, I read a page and a half. I read, I read the same thing. I, I just put it down because well, it was so pathetic. People told me it was a page turn, and I turned one page, and that was, I was satisfied. That's, funny. That's exactly my experience. Yeah. And yet, look at it. And it's funny, in Book Expo, <coughs> uh, we were talking about in Washington just two or three weeks ago, of course, the movie came out, and so you, you walk outside of Book Expo, and you see Tom Hanks' yeah. face everywhere. Yeah. And just two, three weeks ago, I was in Italy in a small island off the coast of Naples, 
Tom Hanks' face staring at me there, too. Is that where all the money is going? You know, the book well, buying money is going into these kind of well, trash a lot novels? Of, a lot of it is, yes, unfortunately. I mean, there's still good books. Uh, and, and there are people who, you know, who will say uh, in the uh, gustibus non est disputandum, yeah. non disputing taste. No. But isn't that what you do? Are you an arbiter of taste? Um, unfortunately, I, I wish I, I, I guess, of course, you know, uh, by, by the nature of the job. And because of the fact that now in the globe, there are not that many extensive review, book review sites in Canada anymore, at least in print, with wide circulation. And you have Literary Review of Canada, which does a nice job, books in Canada, but they have small circulations and they have specific targets in mind. We have four or 500,000 people. We have a pretty representative selection of upscale readers, that highly educated, and that's what we tend to go with. But that doesn't mean you can completely ignore things that are more ephemeral. Or popular. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, occasionally I'll do roundups of chiclet, and I'll ask somebody to say, look, what is worth reading here? If somebody wants to read this, I'm giving you a box of 12. Pick out four or five that, you know, that might be worth reading, and maybe one or two that illustrate why they're not worth reading. Yeah. So we try to turn it into a, a slightly different kind of exercise. The balance is the, the key. You know, and I'm, I tend to be balanced, focused on slightly higher end. Yeah, well, again, I think that's what your your audience is, uh, theoretically, anyway. They're the, the better educated among Canadians. I do notice that some of the books that, that you review, uh, also there are ads for the books. So my question is, how do you operate? What books do you choose to review? Do you go with what's fed to you by the publishers because they're advertising? I and mean, that must be no. some consideration. No, it's no consideration some. whatsoever, but they're advertising. There's a correlation, and the correlation is the following, that the bigger uh, publishers uh, have more money to advertise, but they also have more money to spend on getting the best authors, and they also have the biggest hype machines. So there's no causation. I, no, I don't even know what's being advertised until the, uh, long after I've assigned the books. I mean, you could, I've been in this long enough to know, you could certainly uh, infer that this is a book that's uh, going to be advertised because they've been hyping it in the, the sales meeting. But I don't really care about that. I care if it's the kind of book that we need to pay attention to either because we think it's a good book, might be a good book, uh, an author that is being touted, we've heard buzz about it, the topic is of interest, any okay. number of reasons. So you're telling me that the church and the state are separate at the Golden Mail? Uh, well, they're supposed to be completely separate. No, I do... I, I do speak with their advertising people, and they say, "Is anything? Are you planning anything that we might be able to sell around?" And I'll say, "Well, you know, we're doing a special crime fiction issue, but that's it. But I'm planning that anyway. If they if they want to sell based on that, and you know, we do special children's books issues and things like that." Obviously, I mean, in publishing, it, it, it makes sense to to separate the two. The credibility of the editorial is what drive what, what attracts uh, readers, and, and, and that in turn is what uh, is sold to uh, advertisers. Indeed, although there are some publishers who simply believe that the more money you spend on advertising, the more likely you are to get books reviewed. That is not untrue, but it's not true for the reasons they think. It's only true because, again, these are the publishers with more money and bigger lists and bigger names, and often better writers, to be quite honest. Better writers and, uh, and as you say, uh, writers that, uh, that have a broader appeal, and obviously you want to sort of report yeah. what's going on out there that would be of interest to your readers. Well, that's our, our, our main group of stakeholders, as they call them, is our readers. I feel very powerful obligations, both editorial and even moral, to the publishing community, to the writing community, 
but our primary obligation is to our readers of the Quran, that they're the ones taking the paper, they're counting on us to be reliable. Our job is to make sure we're as reliable, honest, and thorough as possible. This is also a fascinating area because of what's happening with the internet these days, and the fact that it's now easier than ever for anyone to uh, publish a book. And in discussions with various publishers, defining their role in this environment where there's an enormous wave of books and authors and content, it seems to me that their role, more than ever, if they're going to survive, is to be seen as credible arbiters of taste. It seems to me that given this environment, that holds true of you as well. Would you agree with that? Uh, yes, yes I, um, I would agree. I'm not entirely happy about it. You're not unhappy about what? I'm not entirely happy about being an arbiter of taste. What would you prefer to be? Well, I prefer to be a filter. But uh, on the other hand, there's just uh, there's so much going on, so much to know about that someone has to. And maybe filtration and arbitration are kind of equivalent. Seems to me they would be. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah. again, the, the pressure is on you more than ever, I guess, because there's so much more stuff out there you have to sort of look at and then determine what gets into the same number of pages. Yeah. And I feel enormous guilt. On, you know, as we were walking in here, I was talking to one publisher. She simply said, we reviewed a book on history of ceramics in Canada. Not a book probably reviewed by any other big paper. And uh, it sold a lot of extra copies because of it. And of course, I'm very happy about that. But the corollary of that is I feel, well, what are all the books we're not reviewing that are worthwhile that we could be helping in some way? That's the thing, yeah. isn't it? And again, every publisher has a great book, uh, uh, their version of the ceramics book. And of course, that's why you're such a popular man at, the, at yeah. events like Book Expo Canada here. It must be difficult, though, as you say, because uh, why do you choose one over the other? Well, sometimes it's a no-brainer. Mm -hmm. You've got a list that includes Alice Munro and people like You're not not going to review Alice Munro, even though most other papers will. You can't have that gap. No, no, absolutely can't have that gap. Count, readers count on it. Many people don't read three or four papers. And then uh, I have a commitment to Canadian books, I suppose. But again, we have to keep it international. Our readers don't want to know only about Canadian no. books. I, mean, I could do just Canadian books. It would be perfectly easy to produce a very more than respectable section every week with nothing but Canadiana. But that's, again, not what our audience wants entirely. Cosmopolitan. Yes, yeah. they also sometimes want to know about writers they won't know about. Fiction these days is, uh, is in, um, not dire straits, but it's in a kind of it's not doing terribly well anywhere in the world for the most part, unless you feel the blockbuster exception. Again, it gets back to our Dan Brown conversation. Just think about some of that money that could have been spent on really good authors and how not tragic, maybe that's a bit too strong, but still. Just a bit. <laughs> well, maybe not even too strong. Yeah, I, think it, I think there is a kind of potential tragedy to it. I don't begrudge Dan Brown earning his, you know. I mean, obviously, he's tapped the nerve that... He has. It's a, it's a bit like Harry Potter, you know, the fact that she came, that Rowling's came out with those books, and now little kids are reading bricks that they never might used to. Yes, and, and some of them are turning to other books. Yeah. After they're, they're exhausted. And maybe Brown is introducing people who may not have been readers to books. Who knows? Yeah, I don't know about that. <laughs> and I, I was on a panel once where we were talking about getting kids reading, and especially... It's a huge issue with boys. Boys don't read. 
for the most part. But we're talking about kids reading, and I say reading anything, reading comic books, reading things like the Babysitter's Club. Then I picked up one of those and said, I'm not sure I wouldn't rather have my kid read nothing than read some of these. You know, they're just... It's interesting, I started to interrupt, but I had a, a very good uh, conversation with someone who's a, a librarian down in Massachusetts who's an expert on the graphic novel. This is one of the things that he's uh, done. First of all, he's, he's introduced the graphic novel into the library. More than that, he is quite a defender of the quality of some of these uh, graphic novels, like The Sandman, for example. Well, so am I, actually. And I've written about graphic novels, and I also think the future of giving voice to read might lie in graphic novels. We are introducing next week, actually, a semi-regular graphic novels column. Yeah. And then I'm also going to do it for the kids' section. Neil Gaiman, Sam, uh, yeah. Alan Moore. Alan Moore is kind of a genius. He's done uh, graphic novels that are uh, every bit as sophisticated as most of the powerful literary novels are fine. David Mitchell or someone like that. Which is so interesting, you know, yeah. that's bibliophile snobs who don't uh, see comic books as, as having much more well, some, some of the people I report to, I had to, I said, but we have Chester Brown's Louis Riel, which is not a novel, but graphic biography. Chester Brown is an important Canadian graphic artist, as the set. I worked on them before I managed to convince them. I know the New York Times has been doing more of them. And the thing is, though, I mean, with all respect, this is also driven by the marketplace. Graphic novels are the fastest-growing segment of the book business. Yes, yes. Yes, they are. They're suffering certain ways from growth pains, and I get sent a lot of them. And some of them are very bad. I mean, really yeah, very, that's very the thing, bad. isn't it? Crudely drawn. Um, and they were kind of a samizdat. Uh, no, they were really quite underground, and some of them still are. But now some of the big publishers are beginning to bring them. I mean, you had Drawn and Quarterly in Canada, which is devoted to them, and is a brilliant publisher, and uh, Pantographics in the U.S. and some others. Um, and they've been popular in Europe for a long time, I mean, especially in places like Italy and France. And, and of course in Japan, Japan, I mean, that's all they have. Japan, yeah, yeah. Well, they also have manga, which yes. is, yeah. <laughs> I have a bit of a trouble with manga, because I find the drawing so crude uh, that I you know, have a hard time looking at it. It is a serious form. It needs to be taken seriously. And, and some of the future of books is publishers are beginning to realize that. Pantheon in the U.S., M&S is gradually dipping its toe into, uh, I think HarperCollins did one last year, Dragon Slipper. I think it was HarperCollins. I'm sorry if it wasn't. And that was a, a, a history of a sexual, social sexual abuse in a graphic form. Mm. So it's... And the, the success of books like Persepolis, like the Margin Satrapi's two books on uh, being a, a secular Iranian family after the revolution and its aftermath, very sophisticated books. Those kind of lend a public credence to the genre. But I, I do think it's an important genre for the future of books. Speaking of the future, then, uh, can you tell me a bit that you've been in the business, so we were talking beforehand, uh, you were a book editor in Thunder Bay for this going back, what, 30 years or so? Well, I was in the book I was the editorial page editor. Only for three months. My then wife was not keen on moving to Thunder Bay. Okay. We were living in Winnipeg at the time. I had young children. And, uh, okay. Well, let's let's scratch that. Yeah. Uh, but you, you have been in the within the book pages of newspapers for for quite a few years. Well, I've I've been ed books editor of the Globe. It'll be ten years in August. Before that, I was a columnist for the Globe. But I you know uh, I've been in the newspaper for thirty years, once one form or another. Can you then tell me, give our listeners a bit of an idea of how things have changed as it pertains to the book and the way that they've been reported on by the newspaper business throughout your career and, and what's happening now with, with this sort of multimedia?
explosion. Well, some of it is uh, the obvious. <coughs> Ten years ago, it was just, just the beginning of the blossoming, flowering of Canadian fiction. Uh, the year I joined the Globe, you had selected short stories of Alison Rowe, collected Mavis Galan, you had uh, Fall on Your Knees and uh, Fugitive Pieces. Really quite remarkable, because when I was a grad student, I found Canadian literature, this is in the early 70s, pretty unremarkable and quite uninteresting for the most part. Now, there were good books, I just wasn't told about them, that was the other thing. And we still have an inferiority complex, but no, nothing compared to what it used to be. There's no good literature, not much, maybe some poetry, and the odd other thing is produced here. And you're saying that, 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 that that's your belief? No, that was the general belief in, that in the 60s and 70s, just starting, Ho Chosen and Nancy and persons like that, uh, just beginning to develop a, an autonomous and independent and Canadian, Canadian literature. It was still pretty colonial in many ways, and that, that's still there, but when I started, it was just an explosion of great Canadian writing, especially in fiction. The explosion of writers has kept up. But well, why was that? Any idea? I, I think it's just a maturing culture, probably, uh, yeah. in certain ways. You know, the culture that's beginning... More cosmopolitan? A little more co well, that was the theory of Pico Iyer, who wrote a big piece in Harper's about Canadian literature being the first, Canadian fiction, being the first post-nationalist yeah. fiction. So you have you know, Rohinton Mystery, writing not about Canada, yeah. Yeah. but Canadian. It's all the way. You've got N.G. Pasanji in Kenya. Yeah. You have... Uh, Canadians like Dennis Block writing about Japan. Yeah. Um, and you continue to have that. There's a brilliant new uh, novel by Madeleine Tian. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, one of the effects of multiculturalism, I'm not going to say anything about official multiculturalism, no. views on that. but no, of the kind of the mosaic that we have here and the um, kind of openness of the society, and partly because it's so undefined and inquit yeah. in many ways, is that we have this kind of wonderful literature and People get, and, and so that whole idea that Margaret Atwood proposed in the 70s, the kind of the wilderness, that yeah. Canadian literature is a struggle against the wilderness, and all the novels are kind of Canadian Gothic, it's then the small town Ontario or on the prairies or on the Miramichi with people living desperate lives and not so quiet lives of desperation. That's still a part of Canadian literature, but now it's just expanded to include really the, the whole world. And so... I'm not sure that I would call it the first post-nationalist literature, but it's, I might. It's an interesting concept. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned she met Alice Monroe. Of course, a lot of her stuff has to do with rural Ontario. It doesn't have got anything to do with it around the world, and yet it's got no. this universal appeal. That right. Alice Monroe is you know, a great, great writer. Yeah. There are you know, a handful of those in the world. Yeah. There are a lot of very good ones, but great ones. And I, I, call, I wouldn't hesitate to call her a great writer. Um, there are not that many. Now you're jangling your money in your pocket. Oh, right I'm sorry. Because that, uh, that no, you want to get the hell out of here. No, no, it's just a, no, that's just a bad habit I have. <laughs> no, I'm okay, sorry. <laughs> okay. I apologize. Not at all. We can edit that. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. We were, we were getting into the, uh, yeah. yeah, where, where well, you, you came in 10 years ago, what yeah. changes have you seen, and well, where are we now, I've and where will we be? A real acceptance of Canadian writing, and, and a more, much more sophistication. When I started, there were just... Book design was just beginning to take off. And I, that was the other thing. When I was in university, you could tell a Canadian book because it looked like it had been designed by a committee choosing the least offensive and least interesting cover design. And though I just saw a Braithwaite cover of a naked woman with a priest standing by one of these paper jack yeah. books. So then that was a while back. So Not a new cover? 
No, that was about 30 years ago. Okay, but it was so, rare. The covers were usually yes. pretty uh, insipid. Got more design into it. We have many more. We've always had good people working in publishing. We've got some you know, international people we've brought in. But how does that affect what you do? It's, uh, if you can talk in generic oh, terms sure. to, uh, about your role as a books editor for a, a large, internationally renowned newspaper. Okay. The biggest change for me has been the decline of book talk in dailies. And there were dedicated uh, book industry reporters at some papers. There are probably hardly any now covering the industry. Newspapers are often given by celebrities. If, if Madonna brings out a memoir, I can guarantee you that she will get huge coverage for it. Whereas a writer writes it maybe an extremely interesting memoir, unless it gets Oprahized or some equivalent, is not going to get as much attention. And that, I think the culture of celebrities is part of the whole television, internet. So there's been a decline of high-quality literary talk. Talk. Kind of, yeah. And you mean um, in, print, in printed form? In pr in, yeah, it's down. And CBC still does some on broadcasting, but a little less than they used to. Can you can you uh, flesh that out a bit? Then you say uh, there's a there's now a dearth of high quality literary book talk in print, whereas yeah. before what before there was more of it. And and like, book li like what though? Like well, what? book review sections have shrunk everywhere. Okay, and part of that is simply that uh, it's cultural, and part of it is the decline of advertising revenue in yeah. newspapers. It's being spread all over the place, and book sections generally don't pay their way when publishers don't have a lot of money. Uh, they don't pay their way, and so publishers are looking to save money. They have a four-page book section on Saturdays or Sundays. They'll bring it down to a three- or two-page book section. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it is driven by advertising, unfortunately. At least the, the amount of space you have, not well, the content of the space. You've the got the fill. The space, yeah. But whereas, once we went to Tabloid in 1998, and it was a direct response to the announcement that the National Post was coming. We brought in a new editor from England. Richard Addis, very sympathetic to books, and we talked about it. And I said, Post might be thinking, of, I mean, they're going to cover the book seriously because they're coming for us. This is a very good time to do our own freestanding section. I mean, prior to that, you didn't have one? No, well, it, we had a good we part of the focus section. We had right. quite a bit of space. But, but it was the broadsheet rather than the. Absolutely, it was broadsheet. So, so you, you, you went with the, the New York Times model? Yes. It will be the only ones in Canada. Somebody's going to do it, it should be us. Given our structured section, we can never go less than 16 pages. Oh, so even if that was clever on your yeah, <laughs> even if there are no ads, <laughs> we, we still have 16 pages. Right. <laughs> Unless somebody decides that they're going to you know, de-tabloid us, and I don't think that's going to happen because the section is quite popular. Oh yeah. Uh, but who knows? If, if the publisher of the paper is listening, thank you so much, Philip. I really appreciate your support. <laughs> So that was one. That was one change. Then it well, was that's a big change. And then other. It was competition that drove that as much as anything. Then. Yeah, the prospect of comp yeah, well yeah. competition. The prospect of competition is the same thing. Yes, absolutely, it drove it. I, for one, was quite glad to see the Post covering books quite seriously than the, than the Ottawa Citizen was for a while. And so the late nineties to you know, early two thousand one or so, book coverage was quite lively and, uh, and competitive. But the last few years, with the net taking off and hundreds, really hundreds of other forms of entertainment of one yeah. sort or another. Yeah. Um, newspapers altogether and magazines, uh, printed media are struggling a bit. If, you know, the futures, unless we, we reinvent ourselves in certain yeah. ways, is problematic. And cultural things are not the highest priority for most of the 
Again, because of the lack of advertising support. Lack of advertising or you know, down market papers don't care about books much, um, unless it, when they, they do Dan Brown. But many people do. Well, I was going to say that there still is, there's never going, I don't know, <coughs> hopes, there, there's always going to be a market for uh, intelligent writing about books. There will. The question is how big will it be and who Is it shrinking, though? I guess that's the question. Um, I think it is shrinking. Well, the, the writing about books, that's certainly shrinking, except on the net. There are all sorts of websites yeah. that talk about books, and I, I look at a lot of them. I go to Book Ninja, and I go to Book Slot, and yeah. I go to uh, Arts and Letters, which actually plucks stuff mostly from print. And pulls it all in one spot. It's yes. wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, There's some very, very good book discussion out of the Good Report, where Moby lives. Like, you know. But the point is, I guess, what you're saying, though, is that we can do this on the net at yeah. home. We don't have to buy the Golden Mail. It's my book stuff. I it's right on my, well, on some my, on my computer. Absolutely. Top. Some people are thinking that. The problem for us is to make sure we have really good, authoritative people. The net is so, uh, and, and I like its kind of maverick and governable status, but on the other hand, it's not always reliable. Yeah. Well, that's the, that isn't that the big hit that the major media is, is using? They're using that hammer to hit the, you know, hit the web over the head with them. And okay. in fact, that's what's so interesting about what Google and what, uh, what Amazon and MSN yeah. are doing is they're now bringing the book search in as opposed to just all the crap that's out yeah. there because of exactly that, the credibility. If you search books, well, you, there's some credibility. Yeah. Well, of course, Google wants to put every book if they can find all 32 million. And I was talking to someone about that. They said, well, they'll just scan them. They said, no, no, they're going to manually enter them. <laughs> <laughs> you could just get back to the, uh, the, the piece you wrote on, uh, on Cynthia sure. Ozick. I'm speaking with uh, Martin Levin, who is the uh, books editor for the uh, Golden Mail in Toronto. And you ended up with this review uh, that you did of her <coughs> book, you call her among the best and most important, not necessarily the same thing, critics of our time. Can you tell me what you meant by that and relate it to our discussion? Well, what I mean is that she raises questions about the nature, not only of various forms of literature, but of how we perceive various forms of literature that are really germane to any discussion of where we're going with it and what it means today. And so I'm, I don't necessarily always agree with her, um, I like middle brow and even low brow more than she does, and I have more tolerance for them. I think the questions she raised are really important because we tend to level everything. Uh, my opinion's as good as yours. My my review would be as good as yours. My book is as good as this one. You know, why would you review Philip Roth and not you know my self-published book? That sort of thing. And those are extreme examples, but you know, she she addresses very crucial issues, and even the issues she addresses in specific authors like. Again, Tolstoy or Henry James, who is her god, but she's not uncritical of him, raise all sorts of questions about the nature of the way we perceive the world and how literature matters in it. And it's never, it, it's the kind of golden age, the, the, the Ubi Sant, where the, you know, the great, the giants of yesteryear. I don't think there's ever been a time where everybody read wonderful books. You know, they read pulp novels, they read. Dime novels, they read Penny Dreadfuls. I'm not certainly not a literary elitist, but I really think we need to be looking at questions of value. Yeah, I think that gets to the core of, uh, at least about the way I perceive your role, is, is exactly that. I mean, uh, you know, why, why would I read the book section of the Golden Mail? For exactly that reason. Yeah. I want to know what you think I should be reading. 
And that imposes a profound obligation on them. I'm well aware of that. And the obligation is not to be cavalier with people's time and energy. Because isn't that, again, because of the fact there's so many demands on our time now, your role and that specific role is more important than ever. Because, first of all, there's so many choices now available that never were. And we don't have as much time. So I want to go to you, and I want to see, okay, this is what they think. Okay, I'm going to spend time on this book because I just read a brilliant review. Obviously, if I read a brilliant review and I read the book and it stinks, then I'm not going to go back necessarily to such But you say here that she's among the best and most important and not necessarily the same thing. Can you address that specifically? The difference between she is among the best and most important. I can imagine. Can't you imagine a reviewer who has considerable cultural impact? But what they say isn't that good? Well, what they say isn't that good or isn't that deep, but they're important because of the... Because of their celebrity. Because of their celebrity, their cultural influence, for one reason or another. Making a distinction, because she talks about distinctions, and distinctions, I mean, that's the key word. The key word there is the key word for me. Make distinctions among books. And sometimes they're arbitrary or close to it, because they have limited space and time. And sometimes they may even be calls that are mistaken. But we're still in the business of making distinctions, discriminations, one sort or another. And that's what I consider my role to be. Just in closing, we've talked a little bit about what has changed in the last 10 years. Primarily, I think what you're saying is that the amount of space that's devoted to what you love to do is shrinking, at least in the printed page format. As a consumer of this kind of information, the kind of information that you purvey, there isn't a lack of it. As you say, you can go on the net, I can find some great stuff that I've never been able to find before. Fantastic stuff. Yeah, so it's not as if it's not there. No, it's there. It's free at this point, too. That may change, but I wonder if you could just talk a little bit to where you see things going. I see people kind of touting, they've done this over and over, the end of the book, you'll be reading them for some version of Palm Pilots or the Sony Reader. Until we have people who are completely inculcated into that, almost nobody I know wants to read on a screen. Even if it's approximating the quality of print, it's not the same as holding this. And I wrote about that recently because that can't be an aesthetic object. And those of us who love books, books are aesthetic. I think books will survive. And if books survive, writing about them in popular form, at least for the, I'm not willing to predict longer than a short term or medium term. I think it'll survive, but it's going to have a rough go, I think. It's going to have a rough go in in the newspapers because what? Shrinking space. and newspapers. Because, because newspapers. less money is being spent by advertisers in newspapers. Well, well, that, well newspapers will shrink for that reason, yes, and, and fewer readers, too. There will be less money and fewer readers of newspapers. Okay. And that's certainly, I don't know, it seems to be the way things are going. And our editor said the situation of newspapers isn't, the Globe was maybe the Calgary Herald. There are only two English language newspapers that actually increased circulation uh, in the last couple of years. And the Toronto Star, which is the biggest in the country, has lost a fair bit. And this is what's happening. And uh, I know our editor, Ed Greenspan, said once that there's a long line of newspapers walking off a cliff. We just happen to be at the end of it. So you know, there's a question of reinventing yourself, and who knows where that's going to lead. Yeah, it seems to me the value resides 
in the quality of judgment and discernment that you are purveying. And right now we're in a bit of a shakedown, but that's never going to disappear. In fact, it's going to become even more important because of all the crap that's out there, or an increasing amount of it. As long as I'm there and have any say in it, we will certainly be looking for the best people we can find, given certain constraints, such as what we can offer reviewers. But nonetheless, we still manage to come up with people who are really first rate. And that's where I'm always looking for the best people. Don't always find them, but the search will never end. Well, best of luck with continuing the search and finding the best. Best of luck with this project. Thank you very much. It's such an interesting one.